Let's pray together. Father, that was a lot to take in, to come to terms with your great love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not for the righteous, but for those desperate, for those wayward, for those who had turned their back and rebelled on God, who were running in the opposite direction. Us, we in this room, you loved us. You love us. We stand forgiven because of your great love for us. Lord, I pray that our hearts might settle down in that reality, but that our lives might be stirred up to stand for Christ, to love you as we ought, to live the way you've freed us to live, to make an impact in our world, in our neighborhood, in our family, in our house, in our workplace. To be who you died that we might be, I pray. So help us in the text this morning. Help us with your word. Help us to embrace it. Help us to welcome it. Help us to apply it. Help us to be changed by it. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Self-resolve will do nothing, but surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives will do everything, because you alone change us. And we ask you, Lord, change us. Please change us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I have been to many, many churches this summer. Well, many, many. Four. I've been to church in Cape Coral, Florida. I've been to church in Raleigh, North Carolina. I've been to church in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been to church in Cleveland, Ohio. And they were all nice churches. But there was one thing really, really missing in all of them. And that was you. I really missed you. There's nothing and nowhere like Calvary Baptist Church. There is not. So it's good to be here with you. It's good to be back. And we uh, really begin a new season together. And uh, today, really, as we complete um, our section in the Gospel of Mark for this summer, you'll notice that we're only halfway there. We're going to pick this up again afterwards. This is a tremendous hinge text to launch us back into our discipleship series next week. I think you're going to see that. Turn with me in Mark chapter, chapter 8 so we're ready to go. But uh, in the, as you're doing that, let me ask you a question this morning. What is the greatest global crisis of our day? What do you think it is? Forest fires in the Amazon? The LGBTQ issues? Women's reproductive rights, the extinction of species, climate change. I mean, we survey the world around us, human rights. I'm sure they would be sharing all of these ideas. These are the greatest crisis in the uh, greatest global crisis today is this. What, What if we survey the church of Jesus Christ? What do we think is the greatest global crisis today? I think we would agree. I think we would agree. And it all has to do with some of the things you've all been saying. That the greatest global crisis today is the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the greatest global crisis. And and we as followers of Christ, or calling ourselves followers of Christ, 
seem to be making the least impact in this global crisis. The human rights people are making an impact. The LGBTQ people are making an impact. Fires in the Amazon prompted our prime minister to offer $15 million. That's a pretty big impact. Be nice if he'd offer us $15 million. I mean Calvary. <laughs> we could do a lot. Female reproductive rights people are making a huge impact. But are we making any impact? And I wonder if we're not making much of an impact because we are really not living out the expectations that Christ left for those who wish to follow him. I um, was doing some research and there are three billion unreached people in our world. And unreached, the definition of unreached means they've had no contact with the gospel at all. And of those three billion people, 2.4 billion don't even know a Christian. Can you imagine? How will they hear unless someone tells them? And how will someone tell them unless there's a preacher? And how will be, there be a preacher unless he is sent? But of the 4.6 billion people who are not considered unreached, the other people who know Christians, my question is, what kind of Christian do they know? Um, I can tell you that this is perhaps the most troubling text in all of Scripture that we're going to deal with this morning. And of all the scriptures in the Bible, there, isn't, there aren't many that are more significant than this one. And I can tell you that it's one that we're all familiar with, and that becomes dangerous. Because familiarity can, as they say, breed contempt, or hopefully not contempt for the Word of God, but it might cause you to be less than impacted or less than interested because I've heard this so many times before. Well, I can tell you that as many times as you've heard it, I think I've heard it more. I've studied it more. And I can also tell you that in all of the sermons that I think I've preached here at Calvary Baptist Church and the preparation time that I've put into is, has not been as troubling for me personally as this preparation. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit worked me over. So to be honest, I am really, really preaching to myself this morning. If you care to listen, that's great. So, Pastor Kelvin set up this section for us last week. And um, we're at Mark chapter 8. And I want to read the text. And then I want to work with you. And as I said, preach to myself all over again what I've prepared. If we were to ask, if I were to ask you, or if you were to be put on the spot by someone and ask the question about your Christianity, what are the expectations of Christianity? Could you answer that question quickly? 
Uh, perhaps you've been trying to meet other people's expectations with respect to your faith, or perhaps you've tried to craft something of your own that works for you, and you find it comfortable, and this, this is kind of what I think are the expectations of Christianity, or perhaps you're trying to continue to meet the expectations that you have been raised to understand from the church that you grew up in. I'm not sure uh, how you would answer the question, but I think you'll agree with me that there's only one person's expectations that matter. Would you agree? I mean, when we're talking about Christianity and the expectations of Christianity, it really doesn't matter what you or I think or what this church thinks or that church thinks. Or It, it, it matters what Christ thinks. You, you know, when we go on Facebook, we see all kinds of, of advice on Facebook about how to live a healthy life. And you take eat this diet or that diet or don't eat that thing or don't eat this thing and People give you seven new ways to make certain that your life will be healthy. And we're very interested in all of this stuff. This particular statement that Jesus makes tells you and me how we can save our lives. It's not by a diet. It's not by a it's not by a exercise. Although there's nothing wrong with those things. This is from the lips of Jesus Christ, maker of the heavens and earth, who tells us this is how you can save your life for all eternity. So no matter how many times you've heard this, no matter how familiar it is to you, I hope your ears are open. I hope your heart is open as if you've never heard it before in your life. I was reading an essay this week called America's Nervous Breakdown. It's August 8th, published August 8th, 2019 by Rod Dreher. And he writes this, we are living in a world in which Christians can't even hold on to what makes them different. Most Christians have been absorbed by the culture. I'm not finger pointing today, I told you this. I am asking myself, Rick, how absorbed by this culture are you? As I measure it against the expectations of Christ, the one I claim to love, the one who died for me and gave himself for me. So let's take another look at this text. Let's take another run at it. This morning, Mark 8, I want to start back where Pastor Kelvin took you and work our way through to 9 1. So I'm going to start at verse 27. I'm not going to re preach Kelvin's sermon, but he set us up. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? And by the way, the starting point of Christianity is to settle. Who Jesus is. And once you settle who Jesus is, Jesus goes on to say, now here's what you need to do. So today I'm going to, to basically answer two questions. Here's how to be a Christian, and here's why you should be one. Because that's what Jesus says here. So they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. <laughs> Nothing changes. Everybody's out there still doing the same thing about Jesus. Oh, he was this, or he was a great teacher, he was this. Nothing's changed. You know, and we ask you the same question, who, who's Jesus? Well, what are people saying? Well, they're saying this, they're saying But who do you say? Because it matters who you say he is. 
for your life. When we're talking about salvation, it matters who you say he is. But what about you, he asked. And he looks at you this morning and asks you that question. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the one promised to us by the Father in heaven. You are the one who's come to save us. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them, by the way, that changes with the Great Commission. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, which means that the other disciples didn't necessarily know what was going on. So Peter has a close encounter with the expectations of Jesus. And I want you to notice what happens next, because this is our text for this morning. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan, he said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And I would submit to you that the other disciples did not hear this. He turned around and looked at them, saw them over there somewhere, directed this at Peter, and then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. In other words, hey, everybody, come here. Come close. You know, a lot of people have stated that what I'm about to tell you next was only for disciples, was only for the special 12, was only for high-level discipleship. I beg to differ because the text begs to differ. The text says Jesus turned and called the whole crowd of people. Not disciples only, but everybody. Everybody, come and listen. And he's doing that this morning. Every single one of you. There's no one, there's no one excluded from this. Jesus is turning to you this morning and saying, come here and listen to this. If... Anyone in this room wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So he's inviting you to save your life. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. This is the word of God. This text steamrolled me into ministry. And as I was preparing this sermon, I came to realize that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to meet the expectations of Jesus. Being a pastor of this church alone was not enough to meet the expectations of Jesus. He moved in my heart using this text to move to ministry as a vocation, that's not enough. What Jesus is saying here is he sets this up. Having decided that Jesus is the Christ and that he will be rejected by people and was rejected by people, 
and suffered on the cross of Calvary and died and rose again three days later is not enough for you. See, there's all kinds of people in our world who call themselves Christians who say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. I believe that he was rejected by people of his day. I believe that he went to the cross and suffered many things and died there. And I believe that three days later he rose from the grave. And I I believe that he ascended into heaven. And as I understand this text, Jesus would say back to you, that's fantastic. That's great. Satan believes that too. Jesus went on to say, now that you believe that, guys, when he asked them who I am, now that you believe that, guys, if any of you would like to follow me, Here's the deal. Otherwise, you can stay back there believing that I am who I say I am all you like. But that isn't going to save your life. Because anybody who wishes to come after me has to engage in some things. You must decide whether or not you wish to become a Christian, Jesus says. It's an entirely different thing to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and being a Christian. You have to start there, but you can't stay there. Because that's where demons are. That's where the vast majority of a world that calls itself Christian. Christianity is the biggest religion in the world. Not. So Jesus called the crowd. And by the way, you're never going to hear any minister of materialism preach this sermon. Not ever. None of those prosperity guys on TV ever preach this sermon. Ever. It doesn't preach to the prosperity crowd. It doesn't. And that should cause us to pause in our thinking. If a text can't be preached to a particular audience that claims to believe in Jesus as Messiah... Do they really believe in Jesus as Messiah? Three things you're very familiar with. Here's how. It's nothing complicated. It's not difficult to understand even. But for sure the expectations are impossible for you and I to meet in our flesh alone. It's impossible. What Jesus is asking here in terms of expectations is utterly impossible for you and for me by our own strength. That's what makes the difference between Christianity and not Christianity. I'm not going to try and get too technical with you today, but I do want to point out a few things. The structure of the text is Basically, Jesus asked the question, do you want to follow me? He then gives a command, three commands to us on what it means to follow him. And then he gives four reasons why we should. Unfortunately, in most of your modern translations, it doesn't show the structure very well. But if you have a New American Standard or you have an ESV this morning, it will show the structure nicely. You'll see four words After Jesus states what he said in verse 34, you'll see four times the word for, F-O-R. For, verse 35. For, verse 36. For, verse 37. For, verse 38. They're all reasons. 
You should do this, in other words, Jesus says, because. You should do this because. Jesus gives commands and then he gives reasons. I'm going to share with you the commands and then I'm going to share with you the four reasons afterwards. I want you to listen to them all. The first command is that we're to deny ourselves. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Now, there's, a, a tra- there's, there's three translations to get to us. Jesus spoke this likely in Aramaic. It was then translated into Greek, and Greek has now been translated into English. And so what Jesus said in terms of the word deny in Aramaic has a stronger connotation than most of us are thinking. Most of us have thought, well, deny, okay, I'll deny myself strawberry shortcake for a couple of weeks, or I'll, you know, I'll really put myself under the gun, you know, I'll come to church, uh, I'll add another Sunday every month to church, I'd be really denying myself. Yes, it's certainly not less than that, but it is much more, in fact, when Jesus said deny yourself by a, a command to call an aorist imperative, it was settle in your soul of souls that you are going to deny yourself. The strong level that he was talking about is to be willing to put your life at risk. Okay? That is the, the, the foundational interpretation and understanding of what Jesus was really, really saying. He was saying... I want you, if you want to follow me, I, I want you to be willing to put your life at risk for me and the gospel. Because that's what we see here later on. He talks about that. Not, not just put your life at risk like rock climbing and driving a car 597 miles an hour and crashing it and dying. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being willing to... Put your life at risk for Jesus and the good news about Jesus only. It's not just inconvenience or moving away from your family as much as that is deny yourself. There is, when you encounter Jesus Christ, there is a crisis in your life. A crisis of whether or not you are going to follow your old self or follow the new self that Jesus is making by his grace in your life. The old self doesn't want to deny you, your, you, yourself anything. That's the, that's the one you grew up with. That's the one you're probably battling with just like I am. The old self that says, I don't want to put myself in any way, in any inconvenience. I don't want to be uncomfortable at all. Jesus, I would like to be a follower of you, but I would like it to be as comfortable as possible. And by the way, living in Canada makes it highly easy to live comfortably. We wouldn't be having this same talk in North Korea this morning or in Saudi Arabia or in Iran They there know what it is to deny themselves to the point of putting their lives at risk. Afghanistan, we can name all kinds of places around the world. But it certainly at least means when you visit Pastor Kelvin at the ministry fair after church that you can agree to serve in the Sunday school or in the Faithland, or I guess that's the same thing, or in the, in the uh, I'm not in children's ministries, in the, in the, uh, I, in fact, I don't even have, I don't even have a police check that allows me to be in children's ministries. And that's on purpose. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. It certainly means at least serving the Lord with what he's given us and what we have, Jesus will not compete with you for you. He will not. That's not Christianity. 
And by the way, the carrot that the world is dangling before all of us in, the, in this world is that you can gain the whole world. The, the carrot that's out there for all of us in Canada and United States and in the West and all the places where you can live the American dream is you can have all of this. Whatever you want, you can have. Just work hard for it. Materialism, you can have it. You can have the whole world. You can be loved by the whole world. Just be tolerant of everybody. And you can manufacture your own truth. Yes, you can, because Oprah Winfield, Winfrey told you you can. Well, my truth is this, and your truth is that. That's great. I love your truth. It's good for you, and I like my truth. It's great for me. <laughs> I, I, I just find my, myself, my brain becoming mush when I hear stuff like that. I'm just like, there is only truth. There is... They're, the same truth is true for everybody or it's not truth. It, by definition, this is the most ridiculous culture we live in. And, and, and this is our burden to bear in this culture. We're not in Iran. We're not in Saudi Arabia. But we are putting our life on the line and at risk in a culture that is completely absurd. And they think we're the stupid ones. That leads me to the next text, or the next command. Take up your cross. Now, we've, you know, we've been told, and it's not untrue, that Jesus telling, you know, this deny yourself, certainly take to the next step, just go and take your cross, and you, 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 you give up your life as, 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 in, in, on the cross of, uh, as crucifixion, you know? But the picture that Jesus is talking about, first, first of all, he hadn't even gone to the cross yet. You know, you got to go back and see who's he. He's talking to people who hadn't even seen him go to the cross yet. They, they, he told them that he was going to have to suffer and die and all of that, but they didn't know how. They didn't know whether they was going to come and, and, and kill him with a sword. They, they didn't know what was going to happen. So he's basically, for his illustration to make any sense at all, he's telling them about things they have seen, about people they have seen carrying the cross beam to the place of execution. And he's saying, you remember, you know what it's like. You've seen these people, and they're, they're on their way to crucifixion, and they're being ridiculed, and they're being shamed, and, and it's, they're, they're, they're viewed with disgust by the culture. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, you got to be willing to take up your cross, which means put your reputation on the line for ridicule. He's already talked about putting your life at risk with the word deny yourself. That's already, he's already established put your life. He's saying to the next, he's saying, but as you're journeying, before you even die, as you're journeying, are you willing to be shamed and ridiculed and made fun of and made sport of and be the joke of the office? Peter wasn't. Peter got to the bonfire the night of Jesus' crucifixion. And he was, as they started to make fun of him, he bailed as quickly as he could. I, I am shamed of the, ashamed of the number of times as I, as I reviewed my life in the preparation of this. And the number of times I've stayed quiet, hid, pretended I was just a normal guy in the culture, rather than out myself and face ridicule and shame and persecution and rejection. And people won't like me and I won't be one of the boys anymore. You know, we sing that song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <laughs> Jesus has taken this another whole step. You're not surveying the cross. 
you're taking the crossbeam and advertising to everybody around you who you are and who you are loyal to and who you are willing to die for. The job that you won't get, the promotion that you can say goodbye to, the pleasures that you don't get to seize while everybody else is. Laughed at, scorned, ostracized in the court of public cultural opinion, you are considered lame, a fool. and increasingly a threat to the way people want to live. That's where it's going to get messy. That's where it's getting messy. Christianity, make no mistake, runs through the Calvary Road. Stick a mic in Jesus' face as he was on the Via Della Rosa on his way to the cross and interview him and ask him if he would like to suggest that he was living out the greatest life now. And that's also an aorist imperative command. Settle in your heart that you will put your reputation up for ridicule. Or don't bother following me. Don't bother calling yourself a Christian. And then he says, present imperative or present command, keep on following me. And it's all, it seems redundant because in the real text it says, um, if anyone wants to follow me, he must follow me. Why would Jesus say that? I'm sure you've been paying attention to the high-profile defections from Christianity that have been going on, at least the public ones. Guys writing books. Guys writing worship music. Maybe you're not paying attention. There's a lot of people who have been high-profile Christians saying they're no longer Christians. This is why Jesus said, anybody who wants to follow me must follow me. Present imperative every single day. He, he was making the point that, that um, following Jesus means if you wish to follow him, you actually have to follow him. You, you know, I, I'm, curi I, I've, I'm always curious as to what causes defection. Why would someone claim to know Christ write books about Jesus, preach sermons about Jesus, sing songs about Jesus, show up at Jesus' church, and defect. And, and the only conclusion I can come to is that there are a lot of people who like the idea of following Jesus. They like who Jesus is, they like what Jesus promises. They like heaven. They prefer not to be in hell. They like him enough to go to church. They like him enough to sing some songs. They like him enough to, to preach some sermons about how much they like him. But following Jesus is not that. Following Jesus is every single day determining in your heart to embrace the favor of God in your life and make this day about denying yourself and taking up your cross all over again. Make no mistake about it. Our salvation is by grace, the grace of God, the favor of God in our life, nothing of ourselves. Our, our life as a Christian 
is of grace of God, the favor of God, and not of ourselves. But the scriptures never teach that we can simply absorb the grace of God and not act upon it. You know, that great prayer in in Jude, to him who is able to keep you from falling. Now, I don't want you to get nervous this morning and think I've changed my theology or lost my mind and that I don't believe that in eternal security. I don't actually like the term eternal security. You don't ever see that in the Bible. Because I actually believe that the truth of our theology is the perseverance of the saints. That every day, people who are really saved get up and embrace the grace of salvation and thank God for the fact that he is keeping, he's not only the one who saved us, but he's the one who keeps us saved. Now to the one who is able to keep you from falling. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You don't take a break on this. You don't take a sabbatical on your Christianity. Or you just might not be saved. Because the truth of the matter is, you and I, if we profess to be saved, are saved, but we are being saved. And brothers and sisters, until we get to the finish line, you can't take this for granted. You can't coast on this. You, you can't, listen, I can offer you a job for the rest of your life. I say, I'm going to employ you. I'm going to give you, I'm going to guarantee you a job for the rest. I'm going to guarantee you a job for the rest of your life. You have to show up for work, though. The Lord stands before us and offers us salvation. And then says, you want to follow me? You want salvation? Then for goodness sake, follow me. Present imperative, every single day. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Deny that old self and follow me. Take up that cross and be ridiculed and follow me and follow me and follow me and follow me. And then when I take the breath of life away from you someday, you will come with me to heaven. If you stop following him, he doesn't guarantee you heaven. Regardless of what you claim happened at the front of your life somewhere. I'm sorry, I don't know of any other Bible than this one, and that's what it teaches. Believing what is true must move to come after me. There are more people in the LGBT community outing themselves than Christians outing themselves, it would seem. I can't believe how lately one page turns into like 35 or 40 minutes. Something wrong with me. I'm becoming too preachy, I guess. I'm going to give you four quick reasons why. Because this, the command of Jesus must have for you the reasons. I'm not letting you go until I do. If I take you a little bit over time, it's a bonus. <laughs> over time in hockey, over time in football, in all of those things... Pastor Kelvin, isn't it a bonus? Like you're like, wow, I paid for a ticket for this amount of time, but I get extra time. And we're not going to even charge you any more offering. We're not going to take another offering up. You get all this for free. I know you, don't panic. Don't panic. But you've got to hear this. Because, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. What does he mean? Whoever wants to save that old self life 
He's already established that. Whoever wants to save the old self-life, the one that didn't want to deny itself anything, the one who wants to save that life will lose it. You will not get to heaven if you try to save the old self-life. Do you understand that? You will not. But whoever loses the old self-life, he's not calling us all to martyrdom. He's calling us to how we are to live. And if we die, we die. But this is how we live. But anyone who loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So you say goodbye to that old self every day? You don't get to live the way that everybody else lives around you with all the things they have and all the, the, the tolerance and all this stuff? Hey, you save your life. He wants us to want to live. He wants us to, to want a saved life. Jesus is telling us how. He's saying, I, I'm pulling for you. If you want to follow me, that's a great idea. And that's a good thing because that means you want to save your life. Can I wish to save my own life and wish to follow Jesus too? What's the answer? No. You can't wish to save your old self-life and follow Jesus too. Because to have the same life the world has means you have to sacrifice Jesus and the gospel. And if that costs you your life now, then he's saying you don't need to worry. If, if giving up your old self-life means that somebody kills you for that, you don't have to worry because I'm saving your life for eternity. We live invincibly. So seeking to save our life means we are seeking acceptance, we are seeking comfort, we are seeking honor and glory. We are seeking never to put our lives at risk for Jesus' sake. The second four, he says, is this. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his own soul? Because your life is more valuable than the whole world. So don't make a foolish deal. Is the world worth more to you than your life? This, you have to come to terms with that. Is the world worth more to you than your soul? And the whole world that he's talking about here is all the riches in the globe. I mean, this is an amazing thing that Jesus puts up against your life. Think about it. it he's standing before all of you this morning and saying, look, here's your choice. If you could have this choice, if you could have the whole world, not just the greatest house, but every great house, not just the, a rich business, but every rich business, not just a bank, but every bank. Not just a diamond mine, but every diamond mine. Now most of you are starting to say, well, maybe, you know what, maybe. Now you're starting to talk. No, you wouldn't. Jesus says, your life is worth more than that. The reason you should follow me, Jesus is saying is because your life, which is in my hands for all eternity, is worth more than anything there is in this world. And by the way, he was already offered that by Satan. And he had no trouble turning it down. You know why? <laughs> because he already has it. And guess what he says to us? And you are co-heirs with me. I already have all this stuff. And if you'll hang in there long enough, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me, you're getting it all too. You're getting it all. So don't give up your life now. It's a bad deal. Third four, verse 37, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Because once you lose your life, 
by rejecting Jesus, you can't buy it back. No matter how much you have, invest in the future now and don't look back. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Uh, If you had all of the world, could you buy off God? Could you buy your salvation? The answer is no, you cannot. The only one who could buy your salvation for you was Jesus Christ who redeemed you by his precious blood. So he's saying, the only thing that can buy your salvation is my precious blood and you don't have it. There's nothing you could ever get in this world that should cause you to to veer away from me and think that you can buy your soul back. No matter how much you put in the offering plate at Calvary Baptist Church, you can't buy your soul back. So, you have nothing valuable enough to trade me. In fact, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Finally, because anyone who's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation will end up causing me to be ashamed of them. Because in the future, when the tables are turned on the nations of haters of Jesus, and Jesus comes in his God-approved glory with his holy warrior entourage of angels, you want to be on his side. And not on the other side. Not on the side of an adulterous, sinful world. The target of his wrathful judgment. (laughs) Jesus says, and perhaps there's no other reason that grabbed me as much in my study as this one. When we back away from our faith, back away from our courage or boldness, and live ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. We are doing it for the sake of people who are God-haters and sinful. Jesus is standing in their presence and saying to them, over on this side are a bunch of miserable, discontented, God-hating, sinful people. And on this side is the precious Lamb of God who gave his life for you because he loves you. And you are ashamed of me so that you can be one of them? So that you can be brought into their crowd? So that you can be one of the boys over here? You are hanging out with your sinful homies who hate God and you're ashamed of me? You walk out of this church this morning and walk away from the arms of Jesus Christ and prefer to walk into the arms of people who live a distorted life who share vulgar jokes with you all the time and tell you how much they hate God? Those are the arms you prefer? You're ashamed of me? Well, if you're ashamed of me, when I come back, I'm going to be ashamed of you. Most Christians, as the writer of the essay said, have been absorbed into the culture by these people who are sleeping around sinners and care more about fires in the equatorial jungle than they do about dumpsters full of dead babies. And that's who you want to align yourself with? You're afraid? You lack the courage to speak for me. 
Come on, Rick. Come on. Come on. Surely I'm worth more than that. To those who wish to follow Jesus, will get in on the powerful kingdom of God forever. He said to those who were standing around, you know, I tell you the truth, having said this and offering you the option to follow me, that those who do are going to get to see the power and glory of God. Don't be alarmed that he said some of you standing around here. Keep in mind, he hadn't yet shown them the transfiguration. He hadn't shown them yet the cross. He hadn't yet shown them the resurrection. He hadn't yet shown them the ascension. He hadn't yet shown them Pentecost. They were going to see the glory of Christ. I may look, Jesus says, I may look weak right now, and I may look like I'm being dragged around by humans, and you may wonder about all that I've said to you, but I'm going to show you the power and glory of God. And brothers and sisters, we know of this power and glory. How could we betray Jesus Christ by not living this life the way he's called us to live it? Jordan, come on up. As I was meditating on the finale of this morning, I was struck by a song that maybe some of you know. But it ran, rung over and over in my head as I com- concluded my study and my agony with Jesus and my prayers before him and my confessions before him before I ever came before you. And that song that rolled around in my head that, that brought me to weeping in my own office was, In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And when I am alone, and when I am alone, and when I am alone, just give me Jesus. And oh Lord, when I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, please, please, give me Jesus. I, I really don't know where you're at, whether you've never come to know Christ, whether you've been playing Christianity, whether you've been moved by this text, I don't know. I just feel like this morning, let's Get on our feet and let's sing this song together if you mean it. And if you don't mean it, please mean it. Please sing this song. And if we can pray with you, if you want to make a special commitment to Christ this morning, then I'm just going to stand down here and as we sing this song together, I've got nothing more to say. I urge you, follow Jesus. Would you? You come and join me at the front if you want to. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the one who is able to save us and to keep us from falling. Now and forevermore. And oh God, I pray for the powerful work that the Holy Spirit is presently doing in the hearts and lives of our congregation here, your people. Some more publicly evident than others. But where you are at work, O God, I thank you and praise you. And I pray for those who have stubborn hearts in here this morning. Lord, there is nothing in this world worth having if we don't have Jesus. So, Lord, 
our heart confession to you this morning is, yes, yes, we believe you are the Christ. Yes, we believe that you were rejected and suffered on the cross of Calvary. And yes, we believe you died and you rose again three days later. And yes, we believe you rose again and ascended into the presence of the Father. And yes, we believe that you have given us your Holy Spirit to those who are followers of yours that we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And yes, we will deny ourselves. And yes, we will take up our cross. And yes, we will follow you. And no, we will not be ashamed of you. Yes, we will speak for you in the marketplace and in the job place and in the family place and in the mall and in the streets. We will speak for you and not be ashamed. We will come out, oh God, and you will not be ashamed of us when you come back with your entourage of mighty warrior angels to rescue those who have been faithful for a lifetime to you. Every day we will live, live for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.